Good evening, everyone. So we're in Zechariah chapter 9 tonight, Zechariah 9. We're going to read together verses 1 to 10. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. I will I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the living God. And we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, grateful for your word this evening. It is food for us and it satisfies. Some food does not satisfy. This is the true and living bread, for they are the words of Christ. I pray that you'll feed us tonight. For your name's sake, may you build up this church through even my lips in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the triumphal entry, verses 9 and 10. This is a, a passage that's, that's quoted in all four Gospels. And as, as, was, as I was looking this week, there are few stories that are quoted in all four Gospels, especially those outside of the Passion Week, this really begins the the mark, the beginning of Jesus's last week on Earth. And you have to wonder why is this repeated in all four Gospels? Think about all of the stories that are not repeated. In all four Gospels. I don't have a list before me, but there are a number of them. There are only a few that are repeated. 
And I think one of the reasons this is repeated is because this is so clear, so explicit, and it ties together multiple offices of Jesus. He is the Savior to come. He is the King. And this is a prophecy that points to those things. Jesus says in Matthew, I have come. This is fundamental to our faith. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And this is the prophet. When Jesus fulfills this, this is what it means that he fulfills the prophet. Another story, one of the few stories that is also repeated in all four Gospels, is the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000. Why is that one repeated? Well, there's also a prophet, Elisha, and there's the multiplying of bread. Interesting. Jesus is fulfilling the prophets, and all four Gospel writers make note of this. They want to let you know Jesus is fulfilling the law, and they do that in a number of ways. Jesus comes out of the land of Egypt. He's the true bread from heaven. He he succeeds where Israel does not. That's what it means. He's fulfilling the law, and now we're going to see a place where he fulfills the prophets. So Zechariah 1 to 8, we're finished with those. We're in chapter 9. Chapter 1 to 8 is really a unit. This is really a new unit. Chapters 1 to 8 addressed needs and concerns that were more immediate for the people of Israel in Zechariah's day. And so some of those concerns that we talked about were regarding their physical protection, their immediate protection. How will we be protected without a wall? Or how will Jerusalem be rebuilt? Remember, Jerusalem was destroyed because of the captivity and the ransacking of the Babylonians. Another question they asked in Zechariah 1 to 8, the high priest was not pure. So for their immediate concern, we need a pure priest who will offer sacrifices for us. That was of immediate concern. And a few weeks ago, we saw God answer to their question about fasting. They asked, shall we fast now? That we've returned from exile. All of these things are immediate concerns. Zechariah 9 to 14 takes some time after this, perhaps decades afterwards. And these concerns are similar to those of chapter 1 to 8. But these concerns, I would say, they're not as immediate. It's not about physical, immediate protection or atonement for sins. This is a bit different. For instance, also, we are told earlier in the book that God will return to Jerusalem. In chapters 1 to 8, we see that repeatedly. We see that in different ways. But here, in chapter 9, things get more specific. God is indeed going to return to Jerusalem. We get really specific, don't we? The king is going to return. We're going to get really, really specific. The king's going to return on a donkey's So this is the movement of the book of Zechariah. So let's begin. We'll look first at verse 1. Here's sort of a heading I have to begin us. Really, there's just a couple of headings and then several application points towards the end. The first one is this. Earthly kings do the sovereign will of the heavenly king. 
Earthly kings do the sovereign will of the heavenly king. All right, did that catch your attention? Because if you look at the first several verses, where's the earthly king? Do you see any earthly king in these verses? Let's continue on and see if we do. Verse 1 says this is a burden of the word of the Lord. That word burden is not very different from the word prophecy. The idea is similar. This is a prophecy, simply speaking. But all prophetic words that come from God do carry with them a serious weight. And I think this word burden really gets at that a little more fully. It's kind of like, what's the idea here? Well, it's important. It's weighty. It's a burden. Perhaps it's even ominous. And what we have before us in verses 1 to 9 is a list of cities. Note these cities. These are those that pose a threat either immediately or historically to Israel. Against the land of Hadrach and Damascus and Hamath, which borders on it, and others too are listed. Notice the extra remarks given about Tyre and Sidon. Against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise... Kind of goes out of his way to say that. That is, by worldly standards, these cities were doing really well. They were very wise people who lived in these cities. Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Tyre had managed to build itself a strong and fortified city. It was rich, it was prosperous, and strong enough that it continually posed a threat. It contained so much silver and gold that the scripture says the silver was as plentiful as the dust The gold was everywhere, like mire or muck in the streets. Money, if you will, is just sprinkled this way and that in Tyre. But Tyre would not last. God himself says he will destroy it. Verse 4. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea. And she will be devoured by fire. That is completely. Fire touches it. It's done. It's done, done. Tyre had a long-standing Uh, stronghold, not the Babylonian army, not the Persian army, were able to defeat Tyre so completely, and Tyre was proud of this. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, they all foretold the destruction of Tyre. And now Zechariah is doing the same. Isaiah says that Tyre made its merchants like princes. It made its merchants so rich they were like princes. But Tyre was only wise in the worldly sense. Morally speaking, Tyre was the opposite of wise. Isaiah calls Tyre a prostitute. Tyre was a very wicked and corrupt city. And according to our prophecy here, God himself destroys Tyre. And here's the remarkable thing. This prophecy came to pass. It's already come to pass. I think one of the difficulties in approaching the prophetic books is when does this happen? Did it happen? Did it happen? Is it going to happen twice? Did it already happen? Is it going to happen again? Well, this has happened. And I think this is common knowledge. We don't have biblical uh, record of it, but our common historians note that Tyre fell in 332 B.C. It's very specific. And it fell to Alexander the Great. John Calvin, among a number of other scholars, make note of Alexander's exploits. And interestingly, the order in which these cities, you'll see the cities listed there, the order in which they're listed is purposeful. Listen to this. This is, I'm not, no joke. I I was telling my wife, I've done this several times before in in this book. Um, This is an unbelievable book. 
strengthens my faith as much as any book I've ever read. And it's a joy. It's a really a real privilege. And this part that I'm about to get to, it is like, it's really something. All right. Reformed guy, Richard Phillips, has this quote. The judgment proceeds to work its way south. So God judges these cities and he does so in order. The judgment proceeds to work its way south along the invasion route toward one Persian possession after another, from Damascus to Hamath, then to Tyre along the Phoenician coast, and then down to the cities of Philistia, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. Okay. Alexander the Great, the leader of the Greek army, conquered these cities one after the other. Okay, this is just common historical knowledge. Here's another quote from Phillips. Alexander's route followed the precise line stated in our text. And most striking is the accuracy of this description of the fall of Tyre. So four, five, how many prophets did I list a minute ago, predicted the destruction of Tyre. And it happened. God said it was going to happen. And there's even an order of cities listed from north to south. And that's what Alexander just went right down the coast, destroying these cities. Okay, so with that said, let me pause for a moment. What's the point of all this? Think about Zechariah's immediate audience. He writes that the Israelites would be encouraged in their faith. That's something I brought up hopefully every sermon because that's a theme that just runs through this book. He's encouraging them. So how would this encourage them? They never actually see this prophecy come to pass, do they? Because Alexander the Great is some 200 years later after this. How does this encourage them? It is for them. Because God is making a promise. And they can look forward to the Messiah to come. That Israel will be preserved. I think that's one way it encourages them. But I think in another way is I want to draw your attention. This is for us. This is to encourage us. These things happened. They came to pass. These cities were destroyed. It's really something else. God is in control. He knows all things. And time again, what he has said will come to pass. And this thread of God's sovereignty, his will, was going to thread through not just the rest of this chapter, but it's going to thread through the rest of this book. Another note, verse 4 says that God will be the one to overthrow these cities. God will be the one. Yet it is Alexander who does so. That's interesting. It says God will do it, yet we know Alexander did it. Pastor Ryan demonstrated from the book of Daniel this morning. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. Is that not true? The heart of the warrior, in Alexander the Great's case, It, too, was in the hand of the Lord. And Alexander's destruction of Tyre is God's destruction of Tyre. They're one and the same. Alexander went where God directed him. We can say that. We're Calvinists after all, aren't we? (laughs) Moving on. There are other cities listed. Some of these I mentioned. Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, Ashdod. These are cities that are Philistine. And the Philistines have been a thorn in Israel's side. Since it's moved to the promised land, you recall this. Remember Goliath? He was a Philistine. And the Philistines show up to provoke the Israelites on a number of occasions throughout its history. And these cities are likewise destroyed by Alexander. But most noteworthy, 
is verses 6 and 7. God says, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he, shall be for our God. That last phrase, he who remains. That is, there will be some who remain from these Philistine cities. And note what becomes of them. They shall be for our God. They will become converts. They will become the people of God. God will take away those that are idolatrous. Take note of that. That's the first several phrases. He will cut the Philistine pride. Their gods and evil practices will be shown to be futile and worthless. Their idolatrous abominations will be cut off. And those who remain will be converts. So God is saving a remnant from every people group. Even here, in the midst of a judgment. Remember, this is a burden from the prophet. Even in the midst of a burden. We have God saving a remnant from every people group. God will cut off the nations and the peoples, but he will save a remnant. That little phrase at the end of verse 7 is noteworthy too. And Ekron, Ekron will, will become like a Jebusite. This is the same idea. The Jebusites were a people that became incorporated into the people of God. And that's the meaning there. Some of the people of Ekron will be saved as well. They will become the people of God. That's what happened to the Jebusites. They became incorporated into the people of God. Remember Rahab, when Jericho was getting destroyed, even in the midst of judgment, God saved Rahab and her family. That's God doing it again. He's saving a remnant from the people for his possession. He's saving a remnant for his possession. Verse 8 is this. I will camp around my house because of the army. Which army? Well, it's Alexander the Great's army. Because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen with my eyes. God will protect his people. That's the point. He will camp around his house. And this imagery is, of course, similar to what we saw earlier in this book. Remember when God says, I will be a wall of fire all around her. The Israelites were concerned because they had no city wall. And that's a big deal in the ancient Near East. You need a city wall. They were without a city wall. Nehemiah had yet to do it. And so God promised them, I will be your wall. Here it's similar. I will camp around my house. That's verse 8. And as some have noted, Alexander and his exploits could have just kept going southward. He could have just destroyed Israel on the way. Without God's help, humanly speaking, Israel stood no chance against Alexander. They were not fortified to such a degree that they could withstand such an attack. Of course, God could have destroyed Alexander. But instead, God just turned him around. He just drove Alexander in a different direction. Again, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. This verse 8 came true as well. God protected his people. He did it around 330 B.C. We know this because Alexander was going down and he just didn't go to 
Jerusalem. Before the temple would fulfill its purpose, the Messiah had to show up and be presented. And that's in part what we're going to see in the next several verses. The true king of Israel is coming to Jerusalem. This, of course, is the king that Israel has longed for for centuries. King is coming. This is the triumphal entry. Before we get there, though, remember that the people of Israel first asked for a king in the day of the prophet Samuel. The nations that surrounded Israel, well, they had kings. And so the Israelites in that day longed to be like the other nations. For the other nations, well, they were official because they had kings. And the kings were someone to look up to and to guide them and lead them. But this desire was sinful. Here's the account from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Remember this account? But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Judge means like rule. Give us a king to rule over us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So this desire for a king, it was sinful. The Israelites wanted a king because they rejected God's leadership. Remember, Israel was holy. They were set apart. They were different from the other nations. Their laws were just fundamentally different. They were separate. They did not need a king. God was their ruler. But God gave the Israelites what they wanted. He gave them a king. And this king looked apart too, didn't he? Saul, the tall, handsome King. He was the first king, but he did not please God. He even tried to murder David, and Saul lost the kingship later on, as did a number of other immoral kings. Pastor Ryan walked us through 1 Kings this morning, and in just a chapter or so, we read about several bad kings. He mentioned Manasseh, who was evil. He slaughtered children. This is what the Israelites asked for. They asked for kings. God did not want to give it to them. But he heeded and gave it to him. He gave them Zedekiah. Zedekiah was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Pastor Ryan told us his story this morning too. The last thing that Zedekiah saw was the slaughter of his seed. And then they blinded him. The last thing he saw was his, his seed and they were destroyed. So here in the context of Zechariah, there's still not a king. This, this, play, this book, excuse me, this book takes place after Daniel. It's after the exile, after the captivity. And though there is more security and provision in Zechariah's day, there is still no king. And Israel longed for a king. And think about Alexander again for a moment. Would not his presence 
do something to the minds of the Israelites? I'm sure as they hear about Alexander's exploits through this coast, through the Phoenician coast, I'm sure that they would just say, wow, couldn't we have something like that? I'm sure they would be tempted to desire such a man as him. And this actually, this thought actually seems to be in the mind of Zechariah. And in my view, this is part of what is so, so interesting about this text. First, we have the exploits and the triumphs of the warrior, a man with the title great in his name, Alexander the Great. We have his exploits. And then immediately, almost awkwardly, on a dime, we hear about Israel's king. James Montgomery Boyce makes this connection, and he shows the logic in the mind of Zechariah. After a prophecy, quote, after a prophecy of the coming of King Alexander, the proper next step is a prophecy of the coming of Zion's king, end quote. Zion's king is coming. He's not riding a stallion like the great warrior, Alexander the Great. He's not riding a chariot. He's not carrying with him a bow or an arrow or a sword or a spear. He's on a donkey's colt. He's humble. That's your king, church. He's humble. He's righteous. He has salvation and he's bringing it. This is a king unlike Alexander. This is a king unlike any we have seen before. This is Christ. Yes, he's royal. Solomon rode on a donkey. This is, this is royal. This is a thing that happened. But he's more than that, isn't he? And there's a command here. First thing, rejoice. O daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you. He's just. He's perfect, isn't he? He's morally upright. He rules properly. He's not like all of those other kings that we read about in 1 Kings this morning. He's not like Saul. He's not even like David. He's better than David, isn't he? David failed. This king is altogether different. This king brings righteousness and humility. You could go on and on with the quotes. And this king, his reign is not limited to the borders of Israel. This king's reign is worldwide. Take note, he speaks peace. He cuts off the war instruments. And his rule is from sea to sea. During the entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus had not yet accomplished the task. That is, he had not yet gone to the cross. So he comes in on a donkey's colt. And they have the palm branches, and they're waving, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Jesus, what's on his mind? I think it's the cross. He still had to be betrayed by Judas, be taken by captive, by angry men. He still had to be beaten. Clothes had to be taken. He had to be tried by Pilate, crucified, buried. All of these things, I think, were on his mind as he was going into Jerusalem. This is your king. That's how he comes. That's his entry. That's what's on his mind. It's not pomp and circumstance. It's humility. It's self-sacrifice. Washing feet. He had work to do. 
Okay, so what are we to do with all of this information? How does this Old Testament book affect us? How should it affect us? It's written long before our time, and besides, think about the original audience. They were Jews. So here's several application points. The first one is this. Be ready for Jesus to come again. He actually says that in Revelation. Be ready for Jesus will come again. We are exiles in a land. Pastor Ryan also talked about this morning from 1 Peter. We are exiles. And it's appropriate for us to think of ourselves like the Israelites thought of themselves. They were exiles. We are exiles. And we are waiting on a king, just like the Israelites did in Zechariah's day. So what should our response be? I think our response to this text should be the Israelites' response to Zechariah. They were waiting on a king. We, too, are waiting on a king. Though the next time Jesus comes, it's going to be different. He won't be on a donkey's colt. It'll be a white horse. Here's the quote from Revelation. John looks up. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges. Even that rings of the triumphal entry, doesn't it? His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The second application point, be heartened by God's prophecy. Be heartened by God's prophecy. My point really here is just be encouraged that prophecy is fulfilled. There are a number of prophecies in this Passage, And as we mentioned, a number have already come to pass. I think that should strengthen our faith. I know it did mine this week. The cities listed were destroyed just as God said they would be. No one but God can predict the future. Unbelievers can't tout this. And God gives us these sorts of things for the strengthening of our faith. We should use those things to strengthen our faith. And Jesus used this device. Remember, Jesus would say, have you not read And then he would recall the Old Testament. Mark 12.10 is an example. Have you not read this scripture? Quote, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is using the Old Testament to, to point to himself. And this came to be. Jesus was using it to bolster the faith of his apostles and of the people he was ministering to. Jesus used this. We should too. Third point, God saves a remnant from every people group. We should do, we should be in the business of missions, in other words. We see this in the very last line. Jesus' reign will be from sea to sea. We read earlier that God saved a remnant from the Philistines. But what about the people from Tyre and Sidon? What about them? Did he save a remnant from them? We don't read about it in our passage, but listen to this. This is Mark 7. 
And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. She was a Gentile and she was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. God is saving a remnant from every people group. And if we pay attention to the scriptures, we're going to take note of this. So the third application point is be praying for a remnant from every people group. Be seeking them out. It's our job as the church. That's our commission. The fourth and final application point is simple, straightforward. It's this. Rejoice for Jesus is the king of kings. That's the command in verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, for your king is coming to you. I'm going to turn to John 6 and read a few verses in closing. Jesus is a king unlike any other king. Greater than Alexander was Jesus. He's more than a king. That's why he is the king of kings, is he's more than a king. Jesus fed the 5,000. And what happens after he feeds the 5,000? Well, we read that the people wanted to come and, and make him king right then. Verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain alone. So just, just think about this. Think about what the Israelites wanted. Alexander... On a stallion is coming. That's 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 desirable. And now, ho ho whoa, we've got this man, and he's multiplying bread. He's doing miracles. Think about what our kingdom could be. This is better than Alexander. Our man can multiply bread. Our man, he's making water into wine. What kind of king can we have? What kind of kingdom could we be? And they're ready to take Jesus right then and there and say, let's go. Let's take on the Romans. But what does Jesus do? He departs and he goes and he isolates himself. And when he comes as a king into Jerusalem, he's on a donkey and he's going to the cross He's crucified, he's dead, and he's buried. He rises again. And that same account in John 6, John knew that these people were seeking not him, but this other sort of kingdom. And Jesus says, I know what you're after. You're not after, you're not after the true bread. You're after a different kind of bread. 
And Jesus said to them, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And Jesus describes the true bread of heaven in this way. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This was a hard saying for some people. And it's at this point in the gospel where many people say this is difficult. We can't accept this because later on, Jesus says, in order to be my people, you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. And many turn away. We don't want that kind of king. The question, church, and for any of you who may not be a Christian yet, the question for you is the question Jesus has for the people in John 6. Will you eat this bread? Will you drink this blood? It's the flesh of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. It's what we partake of weekly. For it alone brings us salvation. And it alone brings us into the true and everlasting kingdom. Let's pray to him. Our Father, we're grateful for this text. And I pray it will encourage our hearts and stir us to work for your glory. And I pray for anyone here who may not yet believe that Christ is king. I pray they'll see that he is king. And not just that, he's savior. And he offers us his flesh and his blood. And if we partake of it, we can be in his kingdom. Work in these ways, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name.